Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice... I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Tuning into Stillness. It's there, within you. An ability to be still and clear in every moment of your busy life. But there are a few hundred other channels of sensations, thoughts, and mental events that make that difficult to experience. In this episode, you will become acquainted with obstacles to stillness, such as speed of thought, habitual patterns, and highly entertaining stories about the world and ourselves. And you will experience a guided meditation to help you connect with this indestructible stillness as you synchronize body and mind in your space. Today we are joined by P. Kevin Strader. Gobsmacked by the teachings of Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche, Kevin became a student of Buddhism when he first encountered these teachings 25 years ago. He since studied and later assisted with programs led by many inspiring and experienced teachers in the Shambhala tradition. In 2017, Kevin became a teacher in the Learn to Meditate program and is currently the holder of it. Professionally, Kevin is a writer and creator of educational and entertaining television programs for children and has earned five Emmy nominations for his efforts. Here's Kevin to take away the discussion. So I, um, I have this subject to talk about, which is near and dear to me. And um, stillness, tuning into stillness. Um, uh, at the beginning of my meditation past quest, uh, 25 years ago, I found it was very difficult to tune into whatever meditation was supposed to be doing for me. I sat inconsistently at first, gradually with more sitting, I started to experience a shift, a shift in my awareness uh, that went through my consciousness and even the physical feeling that I had for sitting because I was experiencing stillness for once. Uh, so I put stillness in this title because to me, that's where that best encapsulates the embodied experience of meditation for me and for many others, I'm sure. Uh, it's, it's a physical word really, which, uh, is important for me because like I have a very speedy mind. So, so initially I was, I was surprised at how hard it was to experience this sort of presence and stillness. So I was very curious and looking at all sorts of sources for the explanation of what I was working with, which was my thoughts. So, so first um, let me set the stage by you know, sort of talking about um, what's in our heads, really. And why is it so difficult to know the nature of those contents and what, and what really what they're doing? So first I came across a sort of stunning number, um, some research by the National Science Foundation. And it was about, that said that the average person has from 12,000 to 50,000 thoughts a day. Yeah. Um, I've had additional sources which bring that down a little bit for the start of 6,000 to 50,000 thoughts a day. So depending on the definition of a thought, whether it's a fleeting observation or, you know, a full-blown emotional story about what you might want to do to your neighbor's new sound system. When I learned of these numbers, I thought, well, I must be a really interesting person to have all these thoughts, <laughs> but uh, 12,000 of them? I mean, at least that seems like a lot. I'm not, am I experiencing that? I mean, I looked at my basic pursuits of, you know, uh, getting up, eating, recalling my dreams, uh, having coffee with my wife and getting my son off to school and, and getting to work and getting work on a job and hustling work and having conversations and meetings and lunch and then at the end of the day, 
socialization, family, maybe an outing. I mean, you know, things like that. Well, I mean, if you put, you know, a hundred thoughts in each one of those things, that's, that's not 6,000 even. So where have all the thoughts gone? Where have they gone missing? Well, I have, I have a few clues and they're kind of just, you know, not even scientific, just a reflection of my ordinary life and experiences. Like on Sunday, I walked through the city for four hours, you know, without recalling much of what I saw in the most interesting, one of the most interesting cities in the world. And, and, uh, and, and I don't really remember the thoughts that obscured them or made it difficult to recall what that was. Um, I, on a work level, I, you know, I mean, I write, I'm a writer. Now, I, I got a note the other day that took two minutes. And the next thing I know, I look up as a half hour. I, you know, what's that? You know, I, I had uh, coffee with a longtime friend the other day. He was going on about really ra a rather interesting story, but he looked at my face and said, you know, you didn't hear a word I said. I said, well, not all of them. So um, trying to remember the details of these occasions, I, and especially early on, I tried to do a little, you know, science look at myself and all I got was an assembly, a stew, a collage of thoughts, impressions and opinions. And a, you know, I mean, I'm fielding and I'm generating thought, but not as many actions occur as a result or not as many marked moments for what those thoughts pertain to or didn't. Uh, you'd think I would be bored. <laughs> yeah, I am. But uh, it isn't, it's not unpleasant this time in our own mind space that we have all the time. I mean, you know, even when thoughts are negative and if according to the NSF science study, well, quite a bit more than half of them are negative in some sort of way and not, you know, like a torturous way, but, you know, well, I'll get into more of that later, but, you know, self-judgment mostly. But anyway, we'll get into that in a little bit. So maybe I am really interesting, although not, maybe not me, but we are terribly interesting beings and we humans of the human realm of existence. Of the six main realms of existence laid out in the Buddhist wheel of life, depicted in the Buddhist wheel of life, the most advantageous for enlightenment um, is the human realm. Unlike hell beings, we are not trapped eternally in flaming emotions. So hot, so painful, we are, we are unable to take in, really take in anything else. Unlike uh, occupants of the hungry ghost realm, we are not consumed by appetites or obsessions that can never be sated from lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. There's a depiction of a hungry ghost and uh, it's like a picture of a, a, a creature with a very small mouth and a very big stomach. So I just thought that's just horrifying. <laughs> Unlike critters in the animal realm, even our dogs and cats, well, not them because they're domesticated, but we do not live in a continuous state of fear of being eaten or having to eat some other thing. And unlike the demigod and god realms, which are supposedly ascendant from human realm, we are not so consumed by a gigantic ego or the fog of comfort that we miss opportunities to apply our powerful and talented life to something we may not even notice that quality in our life. So humans, humans have, humans have the ability to recognize our, our suffering, our samsara, our, and see the damage of the actions that those behaviors inspire continually. But best of all, unlike the other realms, the accessibility to change is, makes us in that position to enjoy our life and the benefits of the human realm. There's this parable and 
Buddhism of like the likelihood of human birth is is likened to if the whole earth were made whole earth were made of water, and there was an inner tube that was thrown on the surface. The likelihood of human birth is the likelihood that a turtle will swim from the bottom of one of those oceans and pop its head up through that inner tube. So it's incredibly unlikely to be born human at all and incredibly likely to not, incredibly unlikely to then witness teachings that will make you aware of the specialness of that, of that moment. So anyway, we are terribly interesting and so useful when actually tuned into the present enough to see that our situation, see what our situation is and imply our Buddha nature. Buddha nature was a realization by Buddha and um, which is basically Buddha nature is we have an inherent ability to see and experience what's going on, to witness with great clarity the things that we are doing and the ways that we can change it. So if we have that, what's the problem? Uh, well, our mind, is, uh, it, it's that mind again. It's that 12,000 again. We're, uh, our mind is constantly on the move. It's restless and in search of more, hunting for the next action, event, task, person, the next thought, word, image, the next any, anything, anything. We skip from one thought to another and one sensation to another. Thinking is a compulsion with humans. More than a scheduled activity. Uh, a teacher I much admire, Orgen Cho Wong, wrote in his wonderful book, Our Pristine Mind, quote, it's hard to tell a compulsive eater to stop eating. Similarly, it's hard to tell ourselves, be silent, let go of your thoughts, meditate, because we are addicted to distractions. Our body may eat three times a day, but our mind eats continuously. So from moment to moment, the moment we are born and before we take in stimulus, we formulate opinions about it and turn it into me. We grasp to make our experiences solid and reproducible. Like me, I have constructed the P. Kevin Strader channel, which entertains Kevin. 24-7. So what are these thoughts made of and what are we doing? So for this, I referred to a book by Sakyamipan Rinpoche called Turning the Mind into an Ally. And in it, there is this digital treatment called Concentric Circles of Mind. Looks like a graphic of the solar system. At the very center is a bullseye where the sun would be. That is where calm abiding, clarity of mind, Buddha nature is. It's the smallest circle. Emanating outward are five other circles pertaining to broad contents of mental activity, okay? So you might think of them as TV channels. The biggest one on the outside is the daily life channel. Here are our cognitive plate is filled with the thoughts and areas I mentioned before, waking, talking, working, eating, socializing. Next circle, fantasies. The fantasy channel, powerfully occupying thoughts with big narratives, complete, multi-century, Dreamy mental events about food, sex, revenge, triumph. Next circle, emotions, the emo channel, and, and, and emotion occurs, then starts spinning. One moment you are calm, the next second anger is all there is. Emotional thoughts have arcs, like a story. They have a subject, usually you, an object, another person, a subject, resentment. It could even be about an object. A shirt purchase that let you down. I hate you shirt. The fantasy and emotion channels are the most engrossing. They're able to completely take us away for an hour. It's something you can sit on a cushion, have a fantasy or a, a deep emotional hurt and you'd be gone. And it goes beyond the hour. It can be days, a lifetime, but so they're the deepest ones. The one we spend the most time with are basically discursive thinking. The discursive, I call that the discursive streaming network because it's vast. It's full of random, non-associated thoughts, half thoughts, as opposed to full drawn out storylines like emotions and 
fantasy. There are multiple channels. It's like multiple channels. Movie here, sports there, soap opera, cooking, and now the news. So you bounce around between your work concerns, school, home, self-observation, judgment, all rapidly happening at a time. I mean, these are, these are firing all the time. It's huge. This just disjointed montage really can leave you going, what was that? The last is subtle thoughts channel. These have less solidity than any other thought channel, like the popping and cracking you might hear standing next to a frozen river. It's like low grade mental chatter. It's not really that big a concern. When it comes up on the cushion, sometimes you don't even notice it. And then at the center is calm, stillness, that nugget, that space, which allows observation for all the others and relief, glimpses with some success. So this gives us some idea of the types of thought and the scope, but it doesn't explain the quantity, though there are many subjects in our thoughts, there's a few predominant drivers of that content. And the primary one is our ego. The self we have created from all our thousands of thoughts, upon thousands of thoughts, the created ordinary self is the subject of, of, of all programming, <laughs> all of our channels, new and old. The founder of Shambhala and Tibetan master Chogam Trungpa Rinpoche had a cozy term for the term, for the result of this cloying, redundant behavior. And he called it the cocoon, that we all build a cocoon whether our cocoon puffs us up or has a lack of self-esteem, they both wrap us in an isolation. We come to think that we are these transitory thoughts. We become the fantasies, emotions, discursive and subtle thoughts that turn into actions in our lives. The science also from that report, NSF's report offers a similar perspective here. According to that, 80% of our thoughts are reruns. <laughs> reruns. We're watching reruns, replays, and streams of thought we had the previous minute, the day, week, year, lifetime, past lifetime, next lifetime. We are the star and the director and the writer and the producer, and we just can't get enough of us. Well, now I know I have an appetite for TV. <clears throat> I don't think that's, I mean, that's, I don't even think that that's not a very funny joke, but it's not like far off. It's like when you model the things that are like you, no wonder we watch so much TV. There's comfort in seeing the same story come back over and over again, and you kind of know where it goes. It's because we're all doing it. It seems like a pile of stuff, but in ways it's, you know, look, we're all sitting here, we're watching each other, we're sharing this thing. This thing about working with our mind, there's basic goodness of work and it's work all the time. So we're okay. But sometimes I really wish I had another me to <laughs> start it all, start all over, sip, start over again. Well, there's, there's really no way around vanquishing uh, the past uh, and not working with our reruns because they end up being programmed. Uh, now, our reruns, our cocoon, it's the same old, same old, but, you know, of course, there's new things in there. But once you start thinking about these numbers and stuff, uh, this became really clear to me how much time I was spending in the past. And that's, you know, I, it's, it's totally understandable. It's hard as in my speedy mind, it's addicted to pushing habitual patterns into place rather than being authentic or, or tenderhearted or, or available in the moment. You know, here's the good news. <laughs> it was coming. Okay. Actually, there is another you. You know, I don't know that. It was probably several yous and several me's, but um, it's a you that you don't see that much of. It goes by the name of really this Buddha nature thing I was talking about, where all sentient beings without exception have Buddha nature in inherent purity, perfection of mind that's untouched by changing mental states, okay? So it is almost like, and you, you will, I'll give you a little more explanation about how, how kind of separate that is. So Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche had another name for Buddha nature, basic goodness, that we are all basically good, clear, compassionate, available to wisdom. We recognize it. 
the fact that we recognize it, you know, even recognizing the good that you don't always do is for, was for me, uh, basic goodness was a, um, a huge concept for me. I have a, I have a book that if you all want to get one day, this is, uh, yeah, what is it? Chasing, yeah, okay. Shambhala, Sacred Path of the Warrior by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. It talks about that basic goodness thing, the cocoon and all that's terrific book. Um, and it just made a lot of sense. Coming out of uh, a Catholic upbringing where, you know, the commandments kind of told you whether or not you were on, on your game or not. It was nice to know that I was on my game already. So good for us. Anyway, pristine mind is another way to think of this basic goodness and Buddha nature. And in Oregon Shonwan's book, great quote here. It's actually the first paragraph. This is another book I highly recommend. Our Pristine Mind by Orgam Chogan. Well, look, this is a great, one of the best books I've read since I read this one. Um, pristine Mind. Um, at its core, our mind is pristine. Pristine mind is a beautiful, natural, naturally vibrant state, brimming with life, self-sustaining in its capacity to provide a dependable, inexhaustible source of happiness and joy. Sadly, most of us do not realize the true nature of mind. We have been disconnected from it. So now there are vast teachings and there are teachers to point out how to create, how we create our suffering and how we can address it. And there are many, many ways to work with it, but all of them will really include the practice of meditation, um, of which stillness is a, a big part. So practice of meditation, <clears throat> Uh, is the path for experiencing these inherent qualities or emerge through merging through ordinary mind and in stillness with stillness we get glimpse we get glimpses of these inherent natures in stillness we relax with ourselves in the present moment without preoccupations preconceptions and habitual patterns and we resist the speedy leaps to the safety of predictable outcomes Stillness works for us in a couple of ways. It takes, in one way, it's like therapeutic. I mean, it takes a lot of energy to maintain your many networks of you and all of those stories. It takes a lot of energy. And just on a level of, you know, time-space management to, to be still provides a simple break from all the thinking, okay? The dream stream of continual mental broadcasting. Ah, meditation, stillness calm and you feel it on another level um, stillness creates a ground for indestructible awareness now and that's more in that line of like there is a separation between our ordinary mind that's full of lots of uh, old stories and ways to manage the new uh, but it, it's different and uh, stillness creates this it's 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 really it's awareness it's like pure awareness and <clears throat> Awareness is not manufactured. I mean, like thoughts or behaviors or cocoons, you know, we make those up. Awareness is, it's, it's just there. It's just there behind the swirls of daily life and emotions of flame and fantasies of go-go and hailstorms of discursiveness and subtle thoughts. And in conclusion, I shall say, with stillness, we get glimpses of this vibrant nature without laid on narratives. We have experienced this. We've all experienced this at various times. Like when you stood on a scenic mountaintop surrounded by beauty. I mean, surrounded by just beauty. I mean, that's, that's it. There's like no cues about your past, either coming up in your mind or signaled by, you know, you're just in like a, it's like a Buddha field or something, you know, you just, you see, you just see it. There's nothing there. It's, there's nothing to be added. Um, or like, you know, you've sat in a garden in the city. I mean, for some reason, the traffic went away for a minute, for a second. And you're like, what's that? <laughs> and, and well, it's just, it's just existence without an opinion. Or when you witness someone's anguish, you know, anguish and suffering and felt no need to talk about yours. 
which I find particularly hard. I'm usually, wow, I, I, I sure hope she gets through her anger so I can talk about mine. <laughs> uh, well, you know, yeah, that's, that's a pretty juicy moment, you know, when you just, I mean, you know, if had it happened by accident, they actually had nothing to say. But uh, if you practice listening and not talking, that was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I just stopped talking. At times I started to act like I was, like I lost my voice. I just, it's where I would start talking, I just didn't. And things would roll out. Or lastly, when you come in, you come to realize that some of your parents' worst ideas, <laughs> that they were hatched in a cocoon. They didn't know either, or they didn't know where their thoughts were coming from. They were coming from places that, you know, doing the best they can, but it's all they had. So in stillness, reruns become less interesting and less frequent. There's less volume to the canned laughter and applause you generate to cheer on your own continual mental creations. You kind of wear them out. But something enriching happens too. Anyway, as Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche put it when he was asked, and this was a senior teacher of mine asked him, he, he was around when Chogim was alive and he, he asked him one night, he says, so what is enlightenment like? <laughs> you know, you had the master right there. So what's it, what's it like? You, you know, you've been there, right? You know, and, and he said, he said, it's more about what is no longer there. So that's what I have to say about um, tuning into stillness. So, um, you know what? I think we're going to press on to do a, actually, you know what? I, I want to open it up for questions at this point about anything. But what we do have at the end of this is I have a short guided meditation that is more pointedly toward um, tuning into stillness or realizing, you know, getting in touch with what stillness is in a practical way. Uh, so, but I, I, I want to kind of open it up at this point to see if anybody has any, any questions at this point. Um, you know, if you don't, you don't. But um, I really invite you to share anything based on um, from the very beginning um, to our, our basic shamatra practice to on through to anything that I, I talked about here in, uh, in this talk. Lori. Oh, hi, Kevin. I, I had just, I, I'm not sure that I understood when, when the senior uh, teacher asked, what is enlightenment like? Uh, what did Chogim Trumpa say? I wasn't sure I understood her, you correctly. Yeah, yeah, sure. He said, uh, he said in response to a question that anticipated a new entity to show that, Trungpa answered by saying to what is enlightenment like, he said, it's more about what is no longer there. And I, I put that in here to, to point up really in ways the removal of, of stories, the removal of habitual patterns, or the, you know, the removal of, and please, you're, I've been studying for 20 years this thing, and I still have problems. So uh, I want to know that there's, but I understand this, because if you're removing some habitual patterns or some ways of just acting without thinking, you're laying on things to the moment that's obscuring your basic goodness. You know, you're, you're putting things in front of it when there isn't really anything to be put there. It's almost like um, you're listening with a different ear. And, um, you know, does that make sense? What do you think, Lori? Any questions about that? Or That's very good. That's what I had understood, mm -hmm. but I wanted yeah. to, to double check. And, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's the spaciousness. It's the emptiness. Mm -hmm. it's yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. Any thoughts or reflections on anything or? Um, so I, I had, uh, I'm not sure if it's a question. We'll, we'll see how it comes out. Maybe it'll be a question. Um, but lately I've been, um, 
going to physical therapy. I, I had a, a, a bro some broken bones and had to be healing. So there's been a lot of thinking around like the planning and scheduling and all this stuff. Um, as well as just like the, you know, sitting with the pain and everything. And, and it's ah, really hard. To, yeah. Thank you. Um, it, it just can be hard to, to find the stillness as being as important as all these things I have to do. And um, I try to like find the moments where I'm like waiting to see the doctor or, you know, just those moments where you're forced to be still. And, you know, I try to practice in those, but, um, but something tells me that, you know, I shouldn't just be waiting for the world to force me into stillness necessarily. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts around how to still see the value in, in slowing down when it feels like you have to go so fast and do so many things. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the, that's really difficult, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, I think you've, you've kind of identified it <laughs> really Bobby and what you're saying, you know, you're, you're describing the conflict. So you're, you are kind of seeing both. Um, you know, there's, there's, the micro expectations of each moment, you know, it's hard to even think of them as separate from the moment. I don't know if that makes sense, but what I'm saying is that, um, you know, if for example, you've got five details on your way to getting yourself to feel a little bit better and each of them adds a little frustration to it. Well, within your cognitive load of your day, these things are going to happen, right? I mean, it's like, you can't avoid them. You have to go through those steps. So it's more like, well, you're concerned about what your opinion is of them. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of self-judgment in, um, uh, you know, thinking about thinking and thinking about stillness instead of just being still. And yeah, it, it's not always easy to just be. Well, that's, yeah, yeah, that is really difficult. Um, and uh, I'm glad that you have so much more time in your life to get better at that. But and now it sounds as if you're identifying it. And uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't lay anything more on that for, you know, that I would have to say. I mean, I think you are noticing. You're noticing. Hi, I just want to um, offer something to what you said, Bobby. Um, if I heard you correctly, you said you have been injured and are forced kind of towards stillness now. And kind of wondering like, how, how have I not been able to value this before? Or shouldn't I be able to value this more without being injured? Is that right? Yeah. And, um, and, 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 you know, especially with like wanting to heal and just be done with it and be out of pain and stuff. There's like, you know, my brain's like, okay, now I'm going to ice it and now I'm going to stretch it. And now I'm going to, and like, you know, just trying to like, make it go away um and stillness i have to just sit there and feel it and it's kind of the opposite of making it go away so it's just you know it's difficult but um but i am noticing it so <laughs> i appreciate that but yeah to, to your point i think that's exactly what i'm talking about yeah i think well i don't i don't know if what i'm about to offer is is as pertinent as i thought but i i'll offer it anyways in that it's kind of it's something that comes up a lot for me whenever I am at Shambhala meetings and um, it's like this like habit gap almost of like um, I in the initial stages like if I haven't been meditating for a while and then I come back to it um, in those first few days um, there's very little like reward or feeling of reward. Um, there's like, I feel like if they measured such sort of what was happening in your brain, there's like very little bio, like your neurological sort of like encouragement. And yet I think coming to these gatherings um, is, is so helpful because it's like, um, there's like a deeper part of me that believes that it's possible for that to feel rewarding and good. And so being here sort of helps cross the chasm from like awareness that there's a problem to 
some kind of existential relief through practice, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, a great um, way of framing it. Thank you. Yeah, that sounds like a useful way to look at your practice. Yeah. So feeling that uh, awareness really does, yeah, from a pra pra pure practice level, really does make a lot of difference to not do it regularly. Just showing yeah. up. Yeah, it's really hard to not judge and to not, uh, and to be kind, you know? I mean, there's so many ingrained ways of which we judge every moment that we do. Some that are so subtle, they're like subtle thoughts. You know, there's like, um, it's almost like there's a little, a tiny background uh, applause chamber. Like, oh, good job, Bobby. You went to get your foot fixed. Oh, and you're now you're reacting like you're upset about it. That's good, because that's what you usually do. So, you know, it's almost like identifying not just a react, there's the subtle voice behind things. It's, that's the thing I found particularly hard to even find. And I was so ingrained into the little narratives I take into each moment that, um, yeah, I think looking at the skandhas in a way is one way to kind of look and see how you're codifying little reactions that come up and how you, how you count on your pain to happen this way and uh or your yeah so i mean yeah like i said i didn't want to lay too much on it before but it is you're examining it and that's really good so don't expect stillness to come right away and i know that you don't i know you have a an attitude you know about it but it starts with looking at the pieces the little pieces and applying loving kindness to all this, something I didn't mention, it should have at the very beginning. So, so much loving kindness. Everything you do. Anyone else? Questions? Thanks for your thought, Nina. Well, I can now, um, I think maybe moving on to um, a guided meditation. And this is, uh, going to feel different than uh, the primary shamatha meditation that we had before. So uh, is everyone ready? <laughs> feel ready? Okay. Okay, good. Um, all right. So let's, um, let's find. Okay. okay, let's find our good posture that we had before. And um, with our upright, not too uptight, kind of find a comfortable place to sit where you have an obstructive view if you can, but it's not that important. Let's start with a little body scan since we've been sitting for a while and thinking about other things. Let's connect and uh, start at our feet, you know, our feet if they're flat on the floor. Or Wiggle our toes and feel our legs, knee and hip, our weight on the seat, on our seat, our strong back and our soft front, shoulders and head, head and shoulders. We feel the contours of our body as our skin touches our clothes in the, in the air. In this posture, I want you to place your gaze where it's comfortable for now, but we're going to be looking more straight ahead eventually. So. Place your gaze where it's comfortable. And bring your attention to your body breathing again, in 
and out, full cycle of the breath. And feeling our presence on the cushion. In and out. Now give more attention to the out-breath. You can still feel your full breath, but let's shift that focus more to the breath going out into the room. Out breath. Going out into the room and dissolving. With the out-breath, extend your awareness with the breath as it goes out. And let it have a sense of, of filling the space. Filling the space in front of you, side, side, and behind you. On above your head, and below your seat. Push out and feel that sense of space around you. The space is the object of meditation now, resting in space. And when sensations or thoughts come, let them flow through. Like clouds. Feel the stillness that exists behind the endless movements of the mind. When you notice that you're chasing a thought, return to the vastness that remains 
undisturbed by that which moves through it. When you're drawn up by a thought, you're back in space, the space of your room. When you're ready, work your way back to the breath. Come back to the body breathing on your cushion in your space right now. So any thoughts on the um, the meditation practice or reflections on the the talk or what you're feeling? Um, I had a uh, interesting sense of um, like as I was feeling the space around me, like noticing all the physical things that are in that space, but then noticing how the space continues on through the cracks in the door and the, you know, spaces where the ants crawl in uh, from the backyard and, <laughs> and just how that space just like permeates just, even though the space has holes in it where there's physical things like the space itself is 
And so what, what came to mind was um, even in those moments where my brain is so full of thoughts, um, I might not be aware of it, but space suffuses all of that as well. And so it's, it's there. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Thanks for that. Yeah. I like the space of this, of no one talking, of I mean, sometimes you're grabbing for something to say, but well, I um, offer you these, these tools of really what you've gone from at the very beginning meditation to this one is, is quite a journey in, in sitting practice. And uh, the first one is more mindfulness oriented, the discipline of coming back to the breath. Though there's a great deal of stillness available physically there and also a spaciousness because you really aren't occupied with 12,000 thoughts or portion. One is really moving out and though it is a mindfulness awareness practice it's probably more well it would be considered more of an awareness practice although with the early the first one to be aware that your mind is away that's awareness too but when you're feeling that space and yeah, twine with what's in it and watching things that do come and go. I just wanted to say, I, I think it's helpful to start with the body like you did and, and that, you know, wiggle your toes, start think, feeling, feeling the different, because I find that that helps me stay when I'm trying to do my practice to stay in the moment is to feel my feet on the floor and to feel my back straight. I, I like that Shambhala emphasizes posture because the straighter your back is, it, it feels like less, um, less of an effort to sit, you know. Thanks for that, Lori. I like the awareness practice. I, I was uh, just so busy in my mind, you know, I, I really couldn't even at first, when I did this, the awareness practice, which is a, a Vipassana style more, I was, I wasn't really, it was so spacious. It was like, like I'm always spacious, <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, how is this different? Uh, but it's the steps toward it, like you're saying, Lori, to go from just being in your body and let you know that you're always, you're really only there, you know, I mean, this, out here is a practice of, of identifying the things that come up and letting them go and being comfortable off of the cushion and out in the world because that awareness practice is the next step is for you to be off the cushion and walking down the hall and you know having an honest reaction or not having to have a reaction. <laughs> 